Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Dr Nikki Vincent about the new Victorian Gender Equality Act and the requirement for some organisations to have a gender action plan. First, let me tell you about Nikki. Dr Nikki Vincent commenced in the role of Victoria's first public sector gender equality commissioner in October 2020. She's currently on the board of InTouch and has an extensive list of previous directorships. Nikki has a wealth of experience in gender equality and organisational leadership. This includes most recently serving as the South Australian Commissioner for Equal Opportunity from May 2016. Prior to that appointment, Nikki held the position of CEO of the Leaders Institute of South Australia, as well as a concurrent appointment as a member of the South Australian Remuneration Tribunal. She has an award-winning PhD in psychology in adult development and leadership, and I think I was one of the subjects for that one when I did the Williamson Community Leadership Program many years ago. She's the mother of four adult children, nine grandchildren and two adult stepchildren. Nikki's also been a foster mum for five years. Her now 18-year-old Liberian foster daughter joined her for the move to Melbourne. Nikki spends her sparse free time walking and hiking, seeing films, listening to radio national podcasts and audiobooks and camping in remote places. She's currently on the hunt for walking and hiking buddies in Victoria, especially the variety that are not early morning people. And as I said earlier, Nikki, I think I can probably help you out there. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Nikki. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) So it's awesome to have you here to have a conversation about Gender Action Plans and the Gender Equality Act. But before we do that, as always, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me a story about young Nikki that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's a sort of long and rambling journey. Um, I came to Australia as a 10-pound pom in the 70s. We didn't know anyone here. My brother, my mother and father and I, um, I was 11 at the time. And then I had a pretty 
rough time. I found it very difficult to adapt to Australia. I was also sexually assaulted by my best friend's father when I was 12. And then I kind of had a quite a tumultuous sort of teenage years and ended up getting kicked out of home when I was 15, supporting myself through year 12 at school, studying a year at university, but deciding to get married at 18, I think just to have some stability in my life. I then got pregnant almost immediately. I had four kids by the time I was 25. And then I went to university. And when the kids were zero, two, four, and six, so that that was challenging. My kids often describe me as me being in my study as most of their childhood, (laughs) because I was trying to do my degrees uh, then, or degree then. I suppose one of the pivotal experiences was when I just about graduated from honours in psychology, I think I either had or was about to, I bumped into a woman in the library at the Bar Smith Library at the University of Adelaide and we both had the same envelopes and we were both, it turned out, going for the same job. We got talking and we we really liked each other and she didn't want to work full-time. She was still finishing off uni. I had four kids. We decided in that conversation to go for the job together and we got it and this was like 1994 so it was unheard of and we didn't realize it was unheard of and we we just thought what a brilliant idea we can job share this didn't know it was a thing or wasn't a thing and we went along and we got the job and um, we're still really good friends now. We live in different states, but we're very good friends, very, very good friends. And so the boss that I had then, I, then my marriage broke up. I became a single parent. It was very tumultuous time for me. But my boss was amazing through that time. We chatted for a while and then I went on to a bigger project and my friend went to a different job. But by that stage... I was handling quite a major project of research and he just said look it's going to be hard for you with the kids like I don't care when you're here there's no need for you to be in the office you can work from home you can work when the kids are asleep like you deliver and as long as you keep delivering that's all I care about and that was so kind of out there back then um, and it really shaped the way I thought about organisations without me even realising and workplaces and, you know, flexibility and all of that without me realising. It was just a no-brainer as far as I was concerned that we need flexibility in that and it doesn't mean that we're not as good at our jobs or we care less about our jobs. We can do both really well if we are given that flexibility. I then went on, did research all over the place, ended up in Sydney in various research organisations, running big projects at a sort of state level and internationally with WHO. Then I ended up running not-for-profit organisations in Sydney, then came back to Adelaide, which is my home state at the time, to set up the Leaders Institute of South Australia the equivalent of the Williamson program. I felt very passionately about equality of access into that program. It was a very exclusive program. I wanted leaders with a disability, more women leaders, more rural and regional people in the program, people of colour, Aboriginal people. And so I set up a lot of scholarships. So in the end, I think about a quarter of the places in that program were for people who uh, were supported into the program. But I did a lot of talking through that on gender equality and I I was always very passionate about it I ended up being there for about 12 13 years and then I saw the the job of the equal opportunity commissioner come up and I applied for it thinking I won't even stand a chance and I got the job was given to me after the first interview and it was a baptism of fire I'd never worked in a 
statutory position. I'd never worked inside of government kind of processes before. The commissioner that was acting in the role was going on an overseas trip the next day after I was appointed, so I had no proper handover, no introduction to government processes. I just basically hit the ground thinking I'll figure it out and sort of did, sometimes the hard way. Then I chaired the national peak body for all of the commissions around Australia, all of the human rights and equal opportunity commissions. We would meet twice a year as a group. They ended up saying, would you be the chair of this for a couple of years? So I got to know everybody and understand what was happening in all of the different jurisdictions. And I knew what was coming up in Victoria through the human rights and equal opportunity commissioner there, Kristen Hilton at the time. And I was really excited by it. And I I just thought, I think I'd I'd really like that job. And and so I kept my eye and, you know, a few people kind of said to me when the job was advertised, it's advertised, you might want to, you know, give it a go. And so that's what I did. And I was lucky enough to get the job in Victoria. And it was, I'd had a challenging time in South Australia in the lead up to that anyway. Um, So I was, and I was coming towards the end of my five-year term, I was at four and a half years and I loved what I was doing in South Australia. I loved it with a passion. I loved my team. They were absolutely Mm. amazing, but we had very little money. We had a very antagonistic sort of environment politically in terms of what I was trying to achieve. And this was well-funded legislation. It was groundbreaking. It was the opportunity to implement something from the very beginning um, and to really make an impact in gender equality, which has always been my absolute passion. So yeah, so here I am setting up a commission during COVID. So all of my team have been virtual. We've implemented this legislation all with a remote team. So I haven't met some of my team in person. And even when I have, it's only been a couple of times. So, you know, it's been extraordinary have been locked into our houses a lot of the time we haven't done it perfectly but it's a small and incredible team here led by Kate Berry who's the the director of the commission and they've just done an amazing amazing job there's only 15 of us I think so um, Mm. and not not 15 full-time either 15 people it's been an extraordinary challenge but an extraordinary opportunity as a Victorian, likewise, when this role was announced, I mean, it is just, I mean, the, and the Victorian government is is clearly very committed to equality. They're putting their money where their mouth is. They're putting their policy where their mouth is. And this role is just one part of that. I'm super excited that the role is in place. So maybe tell us about the Act more broadly, and in particular, what directors might need to think about. And then it'd be great if we can turn to gender action plans. Yeah, well, I'll preface it by saying, obviously, directors of defined entities under the Act, so the Act covers 300 public sector organisations, including all nine universities and all of local government. So anyone involved in those organisations, including those who are on governing bodies and councils, need to understand the Act. Absolutely. The Act also has some tentacles outside of the public sector, so potentially into the private sector and so forth. But it is also, I would say, for for directors who aren't part of defined entities under the Act, it's a signal that things are changing, that gender equality is no longer a nice-to-have, it's a must-have, and it says that government now in Victoria is taking it seriously and, you know, this is something that everyone needs to pay attention to because it's coming down the line, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you didn't know that 
given the media and the focus of attention on it over the last year, you know, mm. and certainly over the last few years, but in the last 12 months has been extraordinary. It's another signal in that yeah. environment, I think, and it's an important signal because it's legislation and it's legislation with teeth. When I say it's legislation with teeth, it's got the strongest teeth of any equality, equal opportunity, anti-discrimination or human rights legislation in this country in terms of compliance powers that I have. So to just give you a bit of an overview, so 300 organisations, 380,000 workers, 11% of the Victorian workforce are covered by the Act. So it's not a small small part it's a it's a it's a decent proportion and as I said tentacles beyond it the main obligations are and they are due at certain times that are in the legislation so the first one is to undertake a workplace gender equality audit across seven key indicators so each organization has to look at their data in their organizations as of June 30 this year And they look at gender composition at all levels of the workforce and in governing bodies. They look at workplace sexual harassment, both reported and in a people matters survey, so a kind of qualitative employee experience survey. So that will look at unreported, but experience, but unreported and why it wasn't reported. All of that sort of stuff needs to be reported in the audit. Recruitment and promotion practices, gendered segregation of the workforce. So where are women and men sort of clustered Mm -hmm. in particular industries or or areas or or jobs like administration and then access to leave and flexibility things like domestic and family violence leave carers leave and flexible work the final one which is so important is gender pay equity they assess the state and nature of gender inequality in their organizations across those seven key indicators and then they analyze that data They then go to their workforce and their governing bodies and any union reps that they have in their workplace and they consult them about what they think should happen as a result of these findings to address any inequality that they find. The actions that come out of those consultations go into their gender equality action plan. Now, normally all of that would be done in the first quarter of this financial year. Because of COVID, I've extended those deadlines. So they would normally be due to me on the 31st of October. Now I've split it. So the data is due to me on the 1st of December this year. So very shortly, we will, next week, I think, launch our reporting platform. Organisations will put that data in. The reporting platform has 67 million, it is, data points. It's huge. We've built that. It's been extraordinary. They then get to do their consultation over Christmas and the new year and their action plans are due to me on the 31st of March next year. They then have to make reasonable and material progress under the Act, that's what it says, on any gender equality actions that they said they would do. So every two years from then, they report to me. So 31st of October 2023, they provide me with a progress report. They demonstrate that they've made reasonable material progress on everything that they said they were going to do, and if not, why not? They also, in that progress report, must report report to me on their gender impact assessment. A third obligation is to look at every program, policy or service that has a direct and significant impact on the public and they must put a gender lens over it from the 31st of March this year when the Act came into effect. So when you think about it, these are public organisations, universities, 
local government, most of what they do has a direct and so much of what mm. they do has a direct and significant impact on the public. For universities, it's their students. For public mm. sector organisations, it's the community and, and likewise with councils. So everything from now on that has a direct and significant impact on the public has a gender lens, has a gender impact assessment done on it. And anything that comes up for review, so any existing policy programme services, including budgets, that come up for review post 31st of March, so existing stuff, must also have a gender lens. That's big and it, it's forever forward. So you think about the impact that's going to have at a community level, that's massive. And they report on those to me in their progress reports each year. One of the other important powers that I have is a dispute resolution function. So this is really unique. This is where organisations or employers or groups of employees can bring a dispute to me that relates to one of those seven key indicators like pay equity, sexual harassment and so forth if it affects a class or group of people. So this is about tackling systemic inequalities in it embedded in institutions. Now, normally, if you get sexually harassed, you can take your complaint to VIRIOC or to VCAT in the case of Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, in the case of Victoria, others like the Equal Opportunity Commission in South Australia. My dispute resolution function is not about individual complaints. If you have a culture in your organisation that has allowed people to get sexually harassed and you feel like you and a bunch of other employees might be at risk because of that culture, you could bring that dispute to me for my assistance in um, resolving it. And I can make recommendations, I can conduct conciliation, I can, do, I can handle the complaint in any way I like except for arbitration. It's the first time a state statutory official has been given powers under federal EBAs. For me to be able to intervene, the EBA must have a clause in it that allows me to do that, but that there's a there's a standard clause being developed in Victoria that unions and, and employers can just drop into their EBAs now. CPSU, which covers all of the public service, has it in there. And so we're building the infrastructure on all of that right now. It's quite a process to get a complaint to me. You have to try and resolve it with the employer first. And it's a voluntary process. So both parties have to agree to bring it to me and my recommendations and resolutions are non-binding. But from there, it might go to fair work. So, you know, it could be quite useful to have this more less formal process. We're taking a less adversarial approach to it because we're talking about structural issues that have existed for, you know, since workplace were invented that we want to create change in where no one's actually to blame. You know what I mean? No one did it. It just mm. happened over time and now we need to fix it. So some employers have already expressed an interest in coming just because they want best practice advice around what they should do in this area as well. But obviously there's a lot of interest in that. We can also develop targets and quotas and put those in place. We won't be doing that until we've got some data and we know where that could usefully be used. But, you know, those are targets and quotas work in certain areas and we will certainly be looking at that as one of the levers. And then we've got things like we can develop procurement guidelines and funding guidelines. We're running a pilot on funding currently that will impact the private sector and not-for-profit mm. sector if they get implemented. So we're certainly very interested in that and there's seems to be a lot of community, when I say community, I mean private sector interest in procurement driving change. And mm. probably I would say I've had less 
positive response from the public sector when I talk about procurement that I've had from the private sector that's kind of like, yeah, why aren't you using that? Why aren't you doing that already? You know, so, but I certainly think there's an appetite building in Mm. some sectors of the community for things like procurement guidelines to drive change. Mm. Because in some areas, you won't get change unless you force it. And I suppose that's probably a a hint for boards, I think, in terms of getting on the front Mm. foot and getting themselves sorted around this stuff uh, so that it's not a big, arduous task. I was going to ask about that because, you know, for those like myself who are on public sector boards, if your organisation is already not well down the path of this stuff, you've got some fancy footwork to do in the next couple of weeks for the first deadline. But I imagine most of the public sector organisations are down the path. But for those that are not required to do this, but in the future may be required or in the future there might be some carrots if they are under procurement guidelines or targets, quotas, whatever it may be, At this stage, are they able to voluntarily do reporting? Certainly, we have developed guidance materials for organisations to help them comply with the obligations under the Act. So they're comprehensive guidelines, they're comprehensive templates, they're all on our website, they're all freely available. So anyone can go and get them and use them. And a lot of organisations have said to us that they are using them, even though they Mm. don't have to report to us. At this stage, we aren't taking their data per se because we don't have the capacity to do that. Although organisations have said they want to voluntarily report to us and we will develop that over time. It was just trying to do everything in this kind of lockdown period with all of these deadlines. We went, let's just get what we have to get done first. Oh, come on, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about expansions. And my, my poor team are like, don't talk about expansion, Nikki. Like, we just need to get this done. But we've certainly had interest. We're certainly having conversations about how we might have some voluntary reporting from some areas. Um, we've been talking to VCOS. We've been talking to construction. We've been talking to women in trades and so forth. And there is interest in that regard. So, And that will be voluntary, so it shouldn't threaten anyone. It's a good way to start getting yourself ready for for what you might need to do in the future and I think this is a signal that this is coming this is not just a Mm. nice to have anymore I mean we're talking about more than 50% of the population I don't think it should be too problematic to kind of think that equality is important in that in regards to that it's more than 50% of the population. Can I just check something so Public sector organisations are required to do gender action plans. When you were talking about the dispute settlement process, that's not just public sector organisations, if I understood correctly. It's it's those organisations that have the permission, for want of a better word, in their enterprise bargaining agreement can bring a dispute to you. Is that right? It is all of the organisations covered. At the moment, it's only local government and public sector organisations. It doesn't include universities at this stage, but we've just received feedback on regulations that will include universities and we didn't get any negative feedback about that. So Mm. they will come under the legislation, under the new regulations. So the Act applies to organisations of 50 people and over, but the dispute Mm. resolution applies to all of those organisations that are public sector, local government, et cetera, who are less than 50. So it's a bit broader, but it's not, it doesn't go beyond the public sector at this stage. But it's so new and innovative. I'm really uh, excited about the prospects for it in terms of role modelling what can be done in organisations to create those really systemic 
changes that need to happen. The workplaces, many, I'm sure many people will have said to you, and you probably say yourself, they've been designed by men, for men. Those men they were designed for were men who had wives at home looking after the kids and doing all the the work. We've seen this huge transition of women into the workforce, nothing much going the other way. So Mm. women mostly have two jobs to do and it's completely unsustainable. We ask of women much more than we ask of men. We ask them both to be paid workers and do the substantial portion of unpaid work that's still required in caring for children, caring for other family members, all of the housework. And when women go to work with all of those other burdens, which are about gendered stereotypes and they need to change Mm. as well, Mm -hmm. They can't get ahead because they can't manage and juggle all of those things unless they're lucky enough to have a housekeeper or or a husband that is prepared to, you know, or a partner that's prepared to stay home and do those things. So workplaces need to shift. It's not women, as Catherine Fox says in her great book, Stop Fixing Women. It's not women that need to change. It's workplaces that need to change. And uh, this is about getting it and demonstrating that they can change. Now, I'm I'm saying all of that and we haven't even had a complaint or a dispute to resolve yet, but I'm actually really excited about it and I'm hoping that, you know, we'll get them. At the moment, we have strict secrecy provisions in our act around being able to sort of talk about those, but we're going to try and get those changed very quickly so that we'll be able to put out case studies and so forth about where this has occurred so that we can demonstrate the change for other organisations. Oh, Nikki, amazing. It is exciting, isn't it? (laughs) It is so exciting. So you've taken us on a beautiful kind of rollicking tour through the Gender Equality Act. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? Oh, well, I've said, I think I've said a couple of times that, you know, this isn't a nice to have anymore. It is a, it is a must have. So my takeaway for boards would be take this seriously. And when I say take it seriously, don't consider it just a tick. What we, what what do we have Mm. to do? What's the minimum requirement we can do to look like we are gender equal? And so when I say take it seriously, I mean, educate yourself. And I'm going to recommend the book Invisible Women, which is probably the most powerful book I have ever read in terms of gender equality and it is great it sets out logically and clearly and it's evidence-based research-based all of the ways in which women have not been taken into account in everything we've designed in the world you know from cars from traffic systems road systems snow plowing systems is a great example medicine everything that have incredible disadvantages for women like cars are crash tested with male crash test dummies and women are more likely to die in accidents or be permanently injured as a result of that and that's today that's not you know decades ago when we didn't understand you know this stuff so when you read that book you can never go back you can't unknow it and you'll just have so many examples that you'll be able to to give and I my partner read it and he's an absolute convert absolutely loves it so I I recommend it as a as a book for men as well as women women it'll make you furious you'll just be like really really angry and stomping around with and you'll be exploding with everybody you know giving them examples did you know this did you know this but men will just be like oh now I know why you're a feminist you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so have those examples 
you know, we've really got to think, like I said, about this is not about fixing women. This is actually about redesigning workplaces. We've got this revolution happening now as a result of COVID, particularly in states like Victoria, probably in New South Wales as well, less so in South Australia, haven't been disrupted as much by COVID as, as the other states, but big differences now between the conversations I have in Victoria and our state of mind around the workplace than mm. there is with my friends in South Australia that have been less impacted and kind of mostly gone back to not exactly the way it was before, obviously, but, you know, yeah. still gone back into offices and so forth, whereas we've been out so long, I don't even, you know, I don't know yeah. how that's going to go when we try to get back in. And the gender thing just feeds and the flexibility just kind of is all part of that. So make the most of it. Measure this stuff. Mm. Go to our website, get all of our auditing materials, download them, use them free. They're free. You don't need expensive consultants. It's all there for you. And use them to measure stuff in your own workplace because I talk to boards all the time and they think it's it's somebody else's workplace that mm-hmm. is unequal, that has a gender pay gap. And I, when I asked, did you ever measure it? No, 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 we don't need to. And honestly, whenever they do, they find they have one. Almost every organisation has a gender pay gap. And so denial isn't a good response anymore. Get out there and measure it and do something about it. So those are my messages. <laughs> I love it. There's a call to action, which I wholeheartedly agree with. And folks, as you're listening to this, I will put a link to the Gender Equality Commission in the show notes so that you can have a look at all of these magnificent resources. I'll also put a link to Invisible Women because that is a fabulous book. I listened to the audio book and it was so wonderful to hear her speaking. It, it was read by the author and I loved it. Nikki, thank you so much. This has been not just an incredibly useful conversation, an inspiring one, and we might get you back on in about 12 months' time if that's okay because it would be great to hear once reports are in and what's starting to happen in that way. It would be great to get some reflections from you about how it's progressing as well. Love to. Great. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with the Take On Board community today. And uh, once I'm back in Victoria, let's go for an afternoon hike somewhere. (laughs) That'd be fantastic. I'd love that. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Nikki. Hi there. It's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.